Adolphus took a long look at the field behind his house. Although it was winter, he thought of the upcoming spring. Would he alternate his crops? Would the spring bring just the right amount of rain? And would the winter, as mild as it had been, be a sign of what was to come? Adolphus's deep thoughts were broken by the slamming of a nearby screen door. He turned to see his neighbor shaking out a rug on her back porch. Adolphus's heart sank. This poor woman. She had lost so much in her lifetime. A daughter had died tragically just nine years before, and then her husband had passed in an equally horrific way. And only a few months ago, her eight-year-old daughter Mary had died from a mysterious illness. Adolphus sighed. If only there were something he could do to help his poor neighbor. Suddenly, it came to him. He had the perfect solution to her problems and a solution to a problem of his own. Adolphus would finally, after 30 years of looking at her from afar, or rather, right next door, Adolphus would ask Hannah Hastings to be his wife. Welcome to Where They Stood, a podcast dedicated to Michigan history and morbidly amazing stories buried deep and not so deep in our family trees. I'm your long story long podcast host, Holly Kaur, and it's been a minute. (laughs) I've missed you guys. I've missed this. And I just am about to take another long break, but it won't seem as long because this break has been so long. I just had to take time off for the holidays and the sickness and actually the weather. Anything that keeps my kids at home sort of prevents me from recording, editing, doing things for this podcast. So yeah, I've been just struggling to get this episode out. Also, this episode kept me from getting this episode out because there were so many different invisible rabbit holes I kept falling into. And I've been trying to figure out whose story needed to be told and whose did not. And speaking of today's episode, it could have been titled something different, but it is a continuation of stories that I just didn't have time to tell you during some earlier episodes, or I didn't have time to get into as much detail, or I discovered some new information. I mean, even though it's still old. And as almost always, the deep dive on one family led me to a really deep dive of another. So you are getting the story of three families that would eventually be tied into one. We will be talking about the Hastingses, the Bennets, and the Gladdings. I'm also going to talk to you about doing some of your own research while telling you a little bit about how I do mine. Are you ready, dear listeners? Let's go. Charlotte Odell remembered well. Do you like that? Charlotte Odell remembered well, remembered well, riding into the town of Milton. Milton, Michigan, with her parents, Arthur and Sarah Odell. Have you ever heard of Milton, Michigan? Let me try the other name it's sort of known by, Battle Creek. Now, did you know this, that Battle Creek was called Milton, apparently? 
Well, Battle Creek is not at all what our story has to do with, but Charlotte Odell remembering well is definitely what we're going to talk about right now. I am going to read a couple of excerpts from articles written about Charlotte's life, her life according to her. And I know I'm skipping way ahead, but Charlotte lived to be really old, maybe 90, maybe 95. She was known as the oldest woman in Eaton Township. She was interviewed several times and gave an extraordinary account of her life. Let me read to you from one of these interviews. Quote, I came to Michigan from New York State in 1827, before Michigan had become a state and when Battle Creek was a little place called Milton, she said. We came by Ox Team Express on a blazed trail to the unbroken wilderness. We came to Eaton County and settled four miles from Eaton Rapids when that town had but one store. And there wasn't much to that. I helped my husband clear land for our new home, and let me tell you, we worked hard. Early and late, we toiled, chopping trees, pulling out stumps, and digging until at last our little log cabin was completed. It was without a hearth, and the door was an old rug, but it was home. Here, I worked the greater part of my life, spinning and weaving, working both in the house and outdoors. End quote. Wow. Now, back in 1827, Michigan was mostly wilderness, and hopefully I remember to post a map for you that I saw recently, and it looks like maybe around Lansing, it just sort of drops off. No settlements west of that line. So it makes it look like the western half of Michigan was uninhabited, which of course obviously wasn't true, because there were humans living there that were doing just fine. But let me continue with a different article about Charlotte. Quote, In point of age, she is the oldest resident of Eaton Township, in which she has spent more than three quarters of a century of her life, having lived in this community since the days when she had Indian children for her playmates, and when her father could shoot enough deer from the back door of his home to more than provide for the family meat supply. This was in the days long before Eaton Rapids had a railway, years before electric lights, telephones, and automobiles were even dreamed of, and when ox teams were the only means of transportation through the practically unbroken wilderness. End quote. That's a pretty remarkable story, don't you think? It gives insight into what life was like for the white people in Michigan in the 1820s, driving through the wilderness with her parents on an ox team, playing with native children, shooting deer off the back deck. Well, the thing is, there are some discrepancies. I'm not sure Charlotte Odell remembered well. Let me explain. I, of course, looked Charlotte up on Ancestry.com. According to several of the censuses and Charlotte's death certificate, she was born on February 1st, 1828. The newspaper said... 1827, and there was actually another article where she stated she was born in 1825. There are a lot of things that you and I have done in our lives, and maybe we can't quite pinpoint the actual year that we did those things. Maybe we just think, oh, it was either in ninth or 10th grade, or maybe I was six or seven, and then you have to try to figure out what year that was. 
But you do know the year you were born, right? And maybe the newspaper got it wrong, right? Or maybe Charlotte's trying to make herself older than she is. Uh, Oh, man. I feel like I'm going to get hexed for this. And maybe she meant that her mother was pregnant with her when the family took that ox trip to Milton, Michigan. But that wasn't what she seemed to indicate, right? I mean, she said she played with Indian children, and it all seemed to be happening in the days long before Eaton Rapids had a railway, which makes us think that she grew up around Eaton Rapids. So my first question was, why can't you remember the year you were born, Charlotte? Maybe things were just like that back then. You just didn't remember the year. But what were you doing in Milton, Michigan? if you guys lived in Eaton Rapids. Because Milton isn't on the way to Eaton Rapids. And it, I just, and it's also kind of like past that line that people didn't really go. But I mean, they were blazing trails, right? With ox, oxen. I should probably look up what the plural, it must be oxen, right? Or it's just, just ox. Oh boy. Okay. So, I have another question for Charlotte. See, her parents were Arthur and Sarah O'Dell, but in 1834, when Charlotte was six, Charlotte's mother, Sarah, got married to a different guy in New York. I think his name was James Payne or something like that. So they're back in New York now? And what happened to Charlotte's father, Arthur O'Dell? I don't know. I even reached out to someone on Ancestry, and she also didn't know. Were Arthur and Sarah divorced? Before 1834? I mean, people did get divorced in the 1800s, but man, the early 1800s? You were just sort of stuck with each other. And I can't find a divorce record, but I also can't find a death certificate. But what's also weird is that I kept digging, and I did find an Arthur O'Dell living near Battle Creek, Michigan, and his age sort of lines up with how old Charlotte's father would be and also that he was born in New York. So is that her dad? It's weird, okay? But here's my thoughts on this first part of Charlotte's life. She either did not grow up near Eaton Rapids or she was never in Michigan until after she was married. And I don't know why I'm so upset by this. (laughs) And Charlotte, I do not really want to talk to you about this. And I'm sorry I'm giving you so much crap. And I'm sure if we sat down in front of each other, I would just let you tell your stories. And I wouldn't be outing you in a public way. Uh, I'm sort of hiding behind the microphone like a keyboard warrior. I guess I'm a microphone warrior. So let's keep talking because I'm sure I'm already boring you. I just, this is one of those things that kept me from getting this episode out in time. What was the real story here? All right. What we know is that in 1834, when she was six years old, Charlotte's mother remarried and she remarried in New York, not Michigan. And then Sarah had more babies in New York, not Michigan. And I'm Pretty sure Charlotte was probably with her mom, not in Michigan, but in New York. So 
did Charlotte Odell really remember well that she drove through Milton? So let us now find out when she did come to Michigan, because she absolutely did. In 1844, Charlotte Odell became Charlotte Bennett when, at 16 years old, Charlotte married George Washington. Bennett. I couldn't find anything about him other than he was from New York. He and Charlotte were married in New York, like I said, and then they lived in New York for at least the next six years because George and Charlotte had their first child in New York, not Michigan, in 1845. His name was Reuben H. Don't know what the H stands for. And next up in 1847 was Adolphus L. I don't know what the L stands for. Now, 1850 was an interesting year for the Bennets. First was the birth of Waldo. Don't you love that name? And he was born in, guess what, New York, not Michigan. But when the census taker found the Bennett family, George, Charlotte, Reuben, Adolphus, and little three-month-old Waldo, they were living in Michigan. Eaton Township, Michigan, specifically Mills Highway. So this is like right outside of Eaton Rapids. Also, Charlotte, wow, I mean, you are amazing because you moved from New York to Michigan, probably in an ox team, blazing the trails through the wilderness with a little newborn baby. That's crazy to me. And then you set up camp. So that whole story she told earlier, I believe that, that they moved outside of Eaton Rapids right around 1850. That was where she helped her husband build that log cabin with a rug for the front door. Listen, I do believe some of her stories. I don't, (laughs) please don't come haunt me, Charlotte. It's just that I just wonder why she embellished that. I don't think she grew up in Eaton Rapids and I'm going to hell. Okay, let's return back to Mills Highway. Any chance you remember Mills Highway from my first episode? Let me refresh your memory. There are two towns slash cities 20 miles southwest and east of Lansing, Michigan called Charlotte, which is the one in the southwest, and then Eaton Rapids is sort of southeast. Clinton Trail was an actual path used by the indigenous peoples of the area and was adopted slash stolen slash used by the pioneers. This trail and later road connects Charlotte and Eaton Rapids, still to this day. It's also referred to as M50. The M stands for Michigan Route or Route. God, what one do you say? Route or Route? Anyhow, Mills Highway is located just off of Clinton Trail between Charlotte and Eaton Rapids. You couldn't just get to Mills Highway from Clinton Trail, though, just in case you're out Sunday driving. You would have to turn south on Royston Road or Ackley Road to get to Mills Highway from M50. But Mills Highway and Ackley Road, Clinton Trail, this was like a little community back in 1850, and it was settled by families from New York. Did they all know each other before moving to this area? Did they move there together? Don't know. Didn't have time to look into it too much. But back to Charlotte and the accounts of her life. The Bennets are living on Mills Highway. And of course, back then, it wasn't called Mills Highway. It just was just a road. Also, just a reminder from Season 1, Episode 1, highways are not four-lane roads with high traffic in this case. 
Highways were called highways because they ran from east to west. Some of them are even dirt. The Bennetts were living on Mills Highway across the street from Ackley Road because Ackley Road dead ends into Mills Highway. And in 1850, living just west of the Bennetts, a few farms down and across the street, was a family called the Britons. The husband slash father, Peter, was a cooper, someone who made barrels, and he also farmed the land. He and his wife Betsy were from New York. The Britons had several children, including Hannah. These two families, the Bennetts and the Britons, would live across the street from each other and then next door for the next long while. Ten years later, Reuben Bennett, 14, was no longer living at home with Charlotte and George. He was actually living with a different family nearby, which I found interesting. Adolphus was 12, living at home, and Waldo... He disappeared, which leads me to believe he had died. But there were two little girls in the family now. Sarah, who was seven, and Mary, who was three. As for the Bennett's neighbors, the Britons, well, that daughter of theirs, Hannah, was missing from the roll call in 1860. But instead of thinking her dead, we all know, especially if you listened to episode one of this podcast, that Hannah wasn't missing. She was married and living with her husband, Nathan Hastings. They were living in Jackson, Michigan, but would soon move back to where Hannah's parents and siblings were, the place she had grown up, Mills Highway. Nathan and Hannah built a home and farmed the land right next door to the Bennetts. At this point, Hannah was 22 and Adolphus Bennett was 12. The Britons, the Hastings, and the Bennett families were neighbors. However, they would be ripped apart by the Civil War. I'm sure it was going to be an amazing adventure, a sense of duty, a true honor to fight for the Union, to preserve the Union, and all three Bennett men enlisted. Time out. Just so you all can make sure we are all on the same page, The enlistment date is the date a soldier signed up to serve. The muster date is when the soldier left to go fight, leave for battle. Muster out date is when they would leave the troop, either because their service time was up or because they were discharged or because they died. Time in. I believe that the eldest Bennett son, Reuben, joined the cause first. He was a private for the 7th Cavalry. I'm just going to let you know ahead of time as many times as I've practiced this. I really have a hard time saying cavalry. Oh, I I just did it. I say Calvary a lot, which I think is where Jesus died or something. Okay, but cavalry. I'm starting to get it. I guess you only have to say it 650 times. All right. He was a private for the 7th Cavalry. No, Cavalry. From Michigan. Mm, Let's talk about that just a bit. Just so we are all clear, Cavalry troops fought mostly on horseback. They did have guns, but also swords or sabers. The 7th Cavalry 
cavalry from Michigan was organized in October 1862 in Grand Rapids, Michigan. On January 16, 1863, Reuben Bennett signed up. He was 18 years old at the time. Shockingly, well, maybe, Reuben's little bro, Adolphus, enlisted on February 10, 1863, just a month after his older brother, with the 7th Cavalry. He gave his age as 18, but on that particular day, Adolphus was chillin' at 15 years old. Time out. Just for your information, the Union required you to be 18 to serve. The Confederates, on the other hand, didn't care what age you were. But how in the heck did Adolphus pass for an 18-year-old? I'm just wondering if really the Union didn't care because... uh, Different times, Holly. Different times. Okay, the boy's father, George Washington Bennett, was 44 years old, and I do not think he enlisted, but every man had to register, if that makes sense. But he did enlist or register because he gave his former military service as being with the 7th Cavalry in Michigan. Now what? What does that mean, Civil War experts? I take it to mean that at some point the father served with the 7th Cavalry, but it was only a Civil War troop. So this Cavalry only came about in October of 1862 because of the Civil War. Remember, it was formed in Grand Rapids. So he couldn't have fought with that in a different war. And George Bennett did receive a pension from the Civil War, so he must have done something. Also, real quick, let's be careful about using information on Ancestry.com. Be wise. Don't go chasing waterfalls or accepting every single hint that comes your way, because there seems to have been another George W. Bennett from New York, same age, that was signed up with the 104th Infantry, or I guess you'd say 104th Infantry. The parents of this George Bennett were listed along with his birth date, and I assumed it was my guy, so I just started saving it. But I always want to check. Oh, and that George Bennett, the one from New York, uh, he was listed as a musician with the Army, which was so cool. But... I had to do my standard background check, and it seems that this George Bennett always lived in New York. No mention of Michigan at all. And the censuses had him living in New York for the rest of his life, and he married somebody named Mary. So yeah, proceed with caution and don't get all cocky, saving all the hints that come your way. Back to the Civil War and the 7th Cavalry from Michigan. These men saw a lot of action. I can't even tell you all the battles that they fought in. There were just so many. And for a minute or two, George Custer was their leader, so that's interesting. And I wonder if that's why so many people signed up to fight with the cavalry. Adolphus and Reuben may have helped defend Washington, D.C. until June 1863, which I think was a rotating thing for all of the units. But one of the biggest battles, of course, was Gettysburg. July 1st through 3rd, 1863. If the brothers were there, they both survived. However, on August 9th, 
Reuben died in Frederick, Maryland. Not from fighting, but from chronic diarrhea. And not from the troublesome diarrhea that attacks you when you're on vacation, but a debilitating diarrhea that caused dehydration and death. Reuben was about 18 years old. Adolphus was discharged in November 1865. He served two years, nine months, and five days and returned to the family farm on Mills Highway. Not much had changed in the short time he was gone, but I bet it felt like everything had changed. In fact, now Adolphus was the eldest child of George and Charlotte. In 1870, he still lived with them as a farmhand. The neighbors were still the Britons, Peter and Betsy, but not the neighbors who lived right next door. Peter and Betsy were sort of down the street and across the road. But the neighbors who lived right next door had grown their family some. It was the Hastings family. Nathan, Hannah, Charles, Clara, Pearl, and dear sweet Ervilla. If you haven't listened to episode one of Where They Stood, what are you even doing here? Your life will be so much better if you go listen right now. But if not, here are the spoilers. Just a few years later, on November 28, 1876, poor Ervilla died while helping out the neighbor lady. Ervilla was just eight years old. If you want to know how she died, you'll have to go back to episode one of the whole podcast. Referring back to Ervilla's death, I have wanted to know whose home Ervilla was in when this tragic accident occurred. Well, when studying the land ownership map from 1873, just three years after Ervilla's death, the two homes closest to the Hastings residence are the Bennetts and the Milbournes. It was said that Ervilla ran home and that could not have been far. It was also said that the woman who was with Ervilla when it happened panicked and ran to find her husband who was outside in a nearby field. The Bennetts lived right next door. George Washington Bennett would have still been alive. So it definitely could have been the Bennetts. And I don't know. And none of these people are talking. Thank God. Poor Hannah Hastings. For those of you in the know, just a year after her poor sweet daughter died, her husband Nathan accidentally shot himself in a fit of rage. He was ticked off at their oldest son, Charles, who I call Charles in Charge, who was 18 at the time. Nathan shot himself in the groin on the family farm and bled out before help could arrive, like help would have done anything to save him. Hannah was pregnant and gave birth to a baby girl the following year, 1878. Hannah's father, Peter Britton, had died a year before her villa, so now Betsy, Hannah's mother, was living with her, along with a 14-year-old farmhand. And Hannah might have received some help from the bachelor farmer who lived right next door. Good old Adolphus Bennett. Adolphus. Never married, always living with his parents, always just right there for almost all of Hannah's life. Hannah's older children grew up and got married and moved away, but she stayed on that farm and raised the last two littles. 
That would include Edward Nathan and Mary, known as Minnie. Minnie was the babe that never knew her father. But then, man, life was so rough for these people. Little Minnie died after suffering for two weeks with a mysterious illness. I'm not going to ask you to imagine. Just know that Hannah Hastings must have been suffering. It was between November and April the following year after Minnie died that a plan was hatched. Perhaps Adolphus just couldn't take it anymore. Perhaps he had seen this woman he had known almost his whole life struggle alone for too long. Perhaps it was just one of those things that made sense, like a business move, an acquisition, a merger. But Adolphus and Hannah got married. Adolphus may have moved into the house with Hannah, like into the Hastings house, because she still had people she was caring for. Her mother, Betsy, was now 90, and Hannah's youngest living child, Edward, was still living with her as well. I do not know the living situation for any of these people in 1890, which would have been just a few years after the marriage of Adolphus and Hannah, because the 1890 census doesn't exist. It burned up in a fire. But in 1900, it was Adolphus, Hannah, Edward, and a boarder named Reuben Holmes living in the house. And I thought it was interesting that they had a boarder named Reuben Holmes. Obviously, Holmes is the last name of this Reuben, but Adolphus had that brother named Reuben H. Bennett. Now, in 1900, I said that they were living in a house together, but I don't mean that they were living in the Hastings house or the Bennett house. On the census, it says they were renting a house nearby. But the interesting thing that I discovered was that Ma, Charlotte Odell Bennett, was living in the home she had lived in since the day she moved to Eaton Township. Well, it was the home that she and her husband, George Washington Bennett, built together. She was living in that home, and I know it was that home because the neighbors are sort of the same in the census, and because the land ownership map still has her as owning the property, but she's not living there by herself. She was living there at 73 years old, and she was raising two of her grandchildren, 15-year-old Warren Childs and 11-year-old Lula Childs. These were the children of Charlotte's daughter, Sarah, or Sadie Childs, Sarah was the younger sister of Adolphus. And for some reason, she wasn't living with her mom, her husband, and her kids. She was living with a family in Charlotte and working as a servant. And her husband was still alive. Cyrus Childs, he was somewhere. I just couldn't find him, but he doesn't end up dying till after Sarah. Sarah's also still listed as married, so it wasn't that they had divorced. I guess they were just hurting for money, and so she moved out. On that census, on that 1900 census, we have Charlotte Bennett still living in that same house on Mills Highway. And we have Adolphus and Hannah living somewhere nearby. Um, They're like maybe nine farms away on the census. And of course, (laughs) the roads don't have names at that point. So the census taker's not writing down road names. You just sort of have to follow the trail 
and look out at a land ownership map to see where the census taker is walking. And it's really maddening sometimes. But I do know who was living right next door to Charlotte Bennett, who was renting, because it says renting, not own, but renting the house that was the Hastings house. And when I realized this, I just sat there with my mouth open for a moment because I had just made a major connection that I hadn't made in episode one. Want to know who was living in the Hastings home right next door to Charlotte Bennett? It was Willis and Mary Gladding, along with their daughter, Daisy. The Gladdings. Does this name ring familiar to you? I hope so. If you listen to episode two of this podcast, you might remember the Gladdings, but you still might not. So we're going to do a deep dive on them. But because their story is so fascinating, the problem here is that we're going to have to tangent to them and we're going to jump back. And then later we will marry a Gladding to a couple of Hastings. One Gladding two Hastings. <laughs> no, you didn't hear me wrong. You heard me absolutely right. All right. You ready to pivot? Here we go. We are pivoting from the Bennett's slashed Hastings's to the Gladdings. We begin the Gladdings story by zooming in on Willis Gladdings' parents, Onslow and Sarah Gladding. They came to Eaton Township from New York, and although their first daughter was born in New York, the next three daughters would all be born on their long journey to Michigan. By 1856, the Gladding family had finally arrived in the Great Lakes State, settling in Carmel Township near Charlotte. Another baby girl was born, Ada. She only lived six months. She is buried in everyone's favorite cemetery, Maple Hill, but unlike so many other babies from the 1850s, Onslow and Sarah Gladding gave their baby girl a big tombstone with the engraving of a girl praying next to a cross on it. Onslow and Sarah's next and final child was a boy, Willis Lauren Gladding, born in 1858. But in October of 1861, just two weeks after Willis turned three years old, his mama died. His father, Onslow, remarried a year later on Christmas Day of 1862, but, well, the times. The Civil War was underway and Onslow decided to go. He left his five children in the care of his brand new wife. Onslow volunteered as a private, and guess what, the 7th Michigan Cavalry, Company D, in the Civil War. That must sound familiar to you, right? Because I kept messing this word up earlier. The Bennett boys, Reuben and Adolphus, also served in the 7th Cavalry. Onslow was serving in 1863, as were the Bennett boys, so, I mean, it seems like they might have known each other and fought with each other, right? I mean, not fought with each other, but fought next to each other. There we go. But just like Reuben, Onslow never came home. 
On July 11, 1863, Onslow died from typhoid fever as a result of battle injuries during the Civil War. That's how it was listed on his death certificate. Washington, D.C. is given as the place of death, so perhaps he died in a field hospital there. He was buried in grave number 4349 in the U.S. Soldiers and Airmen's Home National Cemetery in Washington, D.C. Onslow was 40 years old. He left behind his new wife, and upon his death, he left behind those five kids, now orphaned. Let's zoom in on these children for a moment, because their lives were fascinating, yet really sad. First up is Rebecca Gladding, Onslow and Sarah's eldest daughter. Rebecca's mother died when she was 16. Her father died when she was 18, and then somewhere between the ages of 15 and 17, Rebecca married Ephraim Wells. Ephraim died in 1862 at the age of 23. Rebecca was just 17. They didn't have any children. But those past few years for Rebecca, I just don't know how anyone could make it through what she did, what all these people did. In 1861, her mother died. In 1862, her husband died. And then in 1863, her father died. (sighs) Sometime before 1867, Rebecca married for a second time. Samuel Shaver was husband number two. Rebecca was around 20 years old. And Samuel was... Okay, deep breath, everyone. 40 years old. Okay. Let that breath out. It wasn't so bad. This was the second marriage for Samuel Shaver, as his first wife had died. So, he brought some children to the marriage. But don't worry. Rebecca didn't have to raise any of them. They were only about five years younger than she was. Samuel and Rebecca had children of their own, but Samuel had asthma, and apparently that took his life. Rebecca married a third time to David McCullough, when she was 32 and he was 44, and apparently she was his very first wife. They had a few kids together, and I think they spent some time in Montana. They lived in Van Buren County also, David dying in 1910 and Rebecca dying in 1921. There is a photo of David on Ancestry, and clearly the woman standing next to him has been cut out of the photo because there is a hand resting on his shoulder. I would love to know if that was Rebecca's hand. (laughs) Child number two of Onslow and Sarah Gladding was Ellen. She was 15 when her mother died and almost 17 when her father died. I don't know where she lived or who she lived with from the age of 16 until the age of 20, but when she was 20, she married Alan Southworth. Alan was from... Eaton Township, and was known as the first white boy born in Eaton Township on January 13, 1838. He and Ellen lived with his mother, brother, his brother's wife, maybe some sisters and their spouses, but then Alan and Ellen built a house across the street. Supposedly, the Southworth family home is still standing, although I just didn't have time to look into it. And please know that that kills me. 
I love to look up old homes to see if they're still there. And this one would have been perfect because there's a picture of it on Ancestry.com. Fine. I looked it up because see, I can't not look it up. And this is again why I couldn't get this episode damn done. Oh my wow though. For those of you in the Charlotte, Michigan area, this house is still there. And if you ever go from Charlotte to Eaton Rapids or Eaton Rapids to Charlotte, you pass this house. It is on the corner of Brookfield and Clinton Trail. And it's easy to pick out because it has one of those signs in the front yard stating that it has been in the same family for over a hundred years. All right, this is a little bit of a medium deep dive on how I like to research homes. There's two different ways I like to do it. And keep this in mind if you live in an old house. The first thing you can do is you can go online to Google and you can just type in historic maps and then type in your township or your county. So that's what I did. And I like to use, I think it's called historicmaps.com. And there is a map there from 1895. So now I've got that map. And it tells you who owns the property. And then there's a little black square that shows where the house was. Some of those properties don't have houses on them. I didn't know where Alan and Ellen lived So I just started searching for either Allen or Ellen Southworth as property owners. But I couldn't find them. I found A and M and A and S Southworth. Well, it took me a while to figure out that A and M meant Allen and Myron. Myron is Allen's brother. I kept finding properties like farms that they owned until I found one that had that little square and my mouth just dropped open. The next thing that I do is I open up present day Google Maps, right? So then you go to a view of that township, satellite view, you find where you're looking, and then you go to street view if you can, and you actually get to look at the house if you can't go there by car. In this case, I had an old picture that I could compare to the new picture, and it's absolutely the same house. It's so cool because in the old picture, which says that it's pre-1900, you've got these people that are all real dead, but I mean, they're alive in the picture, but they're all chilling in the front yard. There's a fence, like a white fence. Some of them are leaning on it. Oh my gosh, if you could see this picture... (laughs) You could see Alan Southworth's mother. And yeah, I know her name's Sarah. There's too many Sarahs, right? But she is in front and she looks like a freaking zombie. It's really creepy. I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm sorry. But also her last name, her maiden name was Fullerton, but I couldn't connect her to the Fullertons that I know from Charlotte. Anyway, so Alan and Ellen lived in this house for a while, but then they built one across the street. And I had read that somewhere, I think in his obituary. So there I am uh, on Google street maps. uh, And I swung around, did like a 180 to look at the house across the street. And it absolutely was Alan and Ellen's house because you can always tell this too. Rock foundations, 1910 and, uh, Previous to 1910, 
everybody had a rock foundation. It was right around between 1910 and 1920 where people started using uh, cinder blocks or, you know, cement blocks or poured basements. But you know your house is old as crap if you have a rock foundation. And you know what? Your house is 100 years old if it was built in the 1920s too. So there you go. Anyway, there's another way you can do it. You can just be driving through the country. And like me, I'm obsessed with looking at foundations of people's homes and trying to decide, you know, is is that house 1910 or previous to 1910? And then you can try to find a land ownership map to see who owned that house. So anyways, what do you know about your house? It has a story. Even if it was built in the 1960s, even my house built in the 1980s has a story. We know the stories of the people who used to live here. We know that there was a girl who lived here at one point who was in a wheelchair because we have some extra wide doors to come into our house and we have a ramp that goes up to our front door. We also have metal railings in the bathrooms. We also have a whole house generator because she was on oxygen and needed to have the power on at all times. So it's just stories. What do you know? We also think a drug dealer lived here once. Um, our neighbors told us that. So I'm adding this edit to myself because I wanted to mention that if you do live in a newer home, have you ever thought about who the land belonged to at one point? Or if there was like a house that used to be on your property that has since been torn down? To me, that's just as interesting as having that old house itself. These are the little mysteries that I enjoy. Okay, moving on. Where the crap were we? I think we were talking about, oh, Alan and Ellen Southworth. All right. Now, that Southworth home was on the corner of Clinton Trail and Brookfield Road. I'm going to tell you who their neighbors were. If you head down Brookfield Road toward Five Point Highway, on the left side was the William Stein farm. Do you remember the Steins? They had ditched Ohio when the family had a poisoning attempt. Their teacher tried to poison them. And then, um, you know what? Go listen to season one, episode 16 for that story. All right. Alan and Ellen Southworth did not have children of their own, but put a pin in it. We're going to circle back. All right. So we've talked about Rebecca and her sister, Ellen Gladding. These are the children of Onslow and Sarah Gladding. The third child of Onslow and Sarah Gladding was Aurelia Candacia, known as Daisy. Oh, this girl. Okay, she was nine when her mother died and 11 when her father died, and she went to live with her maternal grandparents, Giles and Rebecca Kellogg, I think. But some shady shit was happening in 1870. See, Aurelia Candacia got herself a job, according to the 1870 census. She was working as a domestic servant for a 37-year-old widower and his five children. The widower's name was Willett Casey Arnold. Now, Willett's first wife, Phoebe, had died in March of 1870. I think she died from complications due to giving birth to a baby boy just a few weeks before she died. But what is so weird 
is that according to the official Michigan Registry of Marriages, Aurelia Candacea and Willett were married on April 22nd, 1870. Dude, that's only a month after Willett's wife, Phoebe, died. What the hey? And then, in June, the census taker walked up to the door and someone in that house, full of two adults and five kids, reports that Aurelia Candacea Gladding is single, 18, and working as the domestic servant. What? She was actually 18, yes, but she was married to the head of the house, whose wife had just died a few months ago. Come on. They were in some kind of a relationship. I don't think they killed Phoebe. No. But they were in a relationship. And they got married because, I don't know, maybe it made them feel guilty to be relationshipping in the house. But they kept that marriage a little bit of a secret. Right? I mean, why would the census taker write that information down that Aurelia Candacea was single, 18, and working as a domestic servant? Mm. Anyways, and it would have been unacceptable then and now. Anyway, eventually they made their relationship and marriage public because they did have three children together. But poor Aurelia Candacea. At the age of 23, she died in childbirth, delivering a baby girl named Daisy Ann. But in case you were worried about Willet, don't be. He knew how to handle this situation because he'd already been through it once before. Brand new baby, and then wife dies. He first handed off the brand new baby, Daisy Ann, to his brother Asa and Asa's wife. Then Willet got married again, because of course he did. I mean, he had all those kids. But he did at least wait three years after Aurelia Candacea died, instead of just waiting a month, like when Phoebe died. Oh, and he had moved from Charlotte to Charlevoix with this next marriage. Willett's new bride was 18-year-old Emma House. Willett was 46. <sighs> Together they had four kids. The final total for Willett Casey Arnold comes in at 12, 12 children, although that doesn't mean he raised all of them. Okay, I know I'm being harsh, way too harsh, way too judgy for these people. I mean, it must have been tough to have a newborn who probably reminded you of your dearly departed wife. So Willett, I am sorry. And anyways, he didn't marry his third 18-year-old bride right away. Anyhow, all right, we are still discussing the children of Onslow and Sarah Gladding. And so far, we have covered Rebecca, Ellen, and Aurelia Candacea. Now, we have arrived at Sarah Jr., or Sarah Lucinda Gladding. She was seven when her mom died and nine when daddy died. She was most certainly left in the care of her stepmom at first, but then her maternal grandparents stepped up and took her in. Do you remember their names? They were Giles and Rebecca Kellogg. And yeah, Kellogg, right? It's got to be related to the Kelloggs. I couldn't tie them to the Kelloggs from Michigan, from Battle Creek. Maybe back in New York or Vermont or wherever they were from. And 
not directly related, maybe distantly. We know that Sarah Lucinda was living with them, probably. But when she was just 16, she married a guy named John Connolly, 20 years of age. And I found some interesting information on the 1870 census. Man, censuses can really tell you some good things. So in this 1870 census, Sarah Lucinda Gladding Connolly is married, 16 years old, in school, living with her 21-year-old husband, John, and they were living with Sarah Lucinda's maternal grandparents. You know them well, Giles and Rebecca Kellogg, who at this point are in their early 70s. Also living with all of these people is Willis Gladding, 11 years old. He would be the grandson of Giles and Rebecca and little brother to Sarah Lucinda. Interesting house to live in. Hey, let's get married, but let's live with my grandparents, my little brother, and I'm still going to go to school real quick. But things change. Feelings change. In the 1880 census, Sarah Lucinda is still living with her grandparents, but John Conley is not. Sarah Lucinda is listed as a housekeeper. She's 26, she's divorced, and she has a little boy, nine-year-old Elmer Conley. So we know that by 1870, Sarah Lucinda had noped her way out of that marriage with John Conley, and then she did get remarried to Chauncey Potter. They first had a daughter named Elsie, and then a daughter named May Louise. When their youngest was five years old, that would be May Louise, Sarah Lucinda died at the age of 38. Sarah Lucinda was buried with her mother, Sarah Sr., and her baby sister Ada, Ada B., who was the fourth child born to Onslow and Sarah Gladding, and had died at six months of age. I'm going to pause here and talk to you real quick about Sarah Lucinda's headstone. If you visit findagrave.com, you'll see two pictures of the same headstone taken at two different times by two different people, except in the newer photo of the headstone, you will notice it is so much nicer. It's clean. It's white. You can read it. And you want to know why it's that way? Chuck Brandon. That's why. If you don't know who Chuck Brandon is, take a listen to Season 1, Episode 7 of Where They Stood Podcast. It's titled Potter's Field. Chuck is a man from Charlotte, Michigan, who not only photographs gravestones, he cleans them as well. He's taking care of people who've been long forgotten. It is incredibly honoring. He's also trying to locate the Potter's Field, which is an area inside of the city's cemetery where about 35 or more people are buried, but not marked. Again, for more on that story, Season 1, Episode 7. Alright, so let's get back to one of my pinned stories and unpin it. I had mentioned earlier that Sarah Lucinda's older sister Ellen and her husband Alan Southworth you know, the firstborn white boy in Eaton Township, never had any children. Well, after Sarah Lucinda died, her five-year-old daughter, May Louise, was sent to live with Alan and Ellen Gladding Southworth. She was not a baby, as some articles claim. She was five years old. 
She was raised by her maternal aunt and her aunt's husband. Now, I know this doesn't have anything to do with our main story, but it was just fascinating and sad. But we're going to zoom in on that one child given to Alan and Ellen, May Louise. May Louise is in that picture of the house. She's sitting on the fence. She was raised by her aunt and uncle. And at 18 years old, she got married. <laughs> oh, I don't know about this one. I, okay. Different times, Holly. It's There's no judgment, okay? No, there's too much judgment. And All right. May Louise was 18, and she married 28-year-old John Kellogg. Okay, that's not too bad of an age difference. But did you hear that name? John Kellogg. So the age difference wasn't what got me. But May Louise married. She married her mother's cousin, first cousin. So John Kellogg was May's first cousin once removed, if you want to be technical. John and May Louise Kellogg had three children, a set of twins, and then another little girl. The little boy was born first on December 25th, but... The little girl, the little twinny, she wasn't born until December 26th. Crazy, huh? Want some insight into how May Louise felt about her aunt slash adopted mother, Ellen, and her uncle slash adopted father, Alan? The twins were named Alan and Ellen. Isn't that the sweetest? But things were not going to turn out well. No. This is the early 1900s. Poor little Ellen died when she was four months old. She was found deceased in her bed, and the cause was listed as chronic indigestion. And then, <laughs> little Ellen died at seven months old for the same thing. These two little babes were buried together in Maple Hill Cemetery, Charlotte, Michigan. Their headstone reads Alan and Ellen Kellogg, 1905-1906. John and May Louise did have another baby in 1913. Her name was Elsie May, named after May Louise's older sister Elsie. This Elsie May lived to be 90 years old, living in Charlotte her entire life. All right. Let's zoom back out and focus on the last of Onslow and Sarah Gladding's children, their only boy, Willis. He was three when his mama passed and then four when his dad died. He and at least some of his sisters were placed in the care of their maternal grandparents. Do I even have to say their names at this point? You know them. You love them. Giles and Rebecca Kellogg. He was raised by his grandparents and possibly his sister, but when we catch up with Willis again... He's married. I know that is a leap, but I just can't find this cat in the 1880 census. The woman that Willis married was named Mary Clausen. Willis and Mary were married in 1882. He was 24, she was 21. Their first baby, Hazel, died at one month of age from a spasm. Their next daughter was born three years later and she would be hell on wheels. Well, not wheels. Well, maybe. Like buggy wheels or wagon wheels? Her name was Daisha Ann Gladding, also known as Daisy. 
She was named after her father's dearly deceased sister, Candacea, Aurelia Candacea. Although Daisy was born near Jackson, Michigan, in Parma, the family lived in Eaton Township in 1900. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the Gladding family on a land ownership map of Eaton Township. I can follow the trail of the census taker for 1900 and compare it to the 1895 land ownership map, which is the closest map I can get to a census. And I already revealed this to you, that by 1900, the Gladding family was living next door to the Bennetts, and they were renting out a house from Adolphus Bennett and his wife, Hannah Hastings Bennett. In case you don't remember, all right, I'm going to remind you, God, I am so sorry there's so many names in the stories. I know, you're probably, I'm just probably background noise at this point. But Hannah Hastings Bennett had a son named Charles in Charge. And Charles in Charge was married to a woman named Mary Guthrie. Mary Guthrie died in childbirth. But their oldest son was named Floyd. Floyd Hastings. Well, Floyd must have come to visit his grandma, Hannah Hastings, or he just maybe visited his step-grandmother, Charlotte Odell Bennett. Maybe he was working on some of those farms and helping out Willis Gladding, who was renting his grandma's house. So wait a minute, Charlotte would have been his great-grandma, his great step-grandma. Oh my gosh. But hold the phone, Joan. In 1908, when he was 21 years old, Floyd was marrying the fairest of them all, 17-year-old Daisha Ann Gladding. Hmm. They were married in May in the beautiful Center Eaton Church, but you know the story, right? Because you listened to episodes one and two of this year podcast. Daisy and Floyd's love was not to last because even though Floyd tried to stop it, a divorce was granted to Daisy less than a year into their marriage. Failure to provide a suitable maintenance. He wasn't providing Daisy with the necessities of life, and Daisy had had enough. A week after their divorce was final, she pulled the ultimate revenge. And really, this is just wow. Daisy married Floyd's father, her father in law, Charles in charge. Bonkers. Just bonkers. Now, Daisha Ann and Charles in Charge did not stay in the area because what would you do? You know, do you think that this was a widely accepted marriage between the two? Mm, no, I think it had people's tongues, just a wagon, and disapproval was sky high. So little Miss Daisy and her new husband moved to Rutland Township and they took Charles's 10-year-old son, Glenn, with them. They did not take any of his older daughters or his older son, Charlie, I think Charlie was 16 at the time and just had to figure it out himself. And maybe the girls were like, nope, we're not going with that girl. She is not our new stepmom. She was our sister-in-law. Now she's our stepmom. Hell no. So they only took 10-year-old Glenn. Oh, wait. They also took Willis and Mary Gladding, Daisy's parents, with them. Now I had a thought. So we're going to pause here and I'm going to share this thought with you. And maybe it's a question thought. And you're not going to know the answer, but I just want to ask this anyhow. Before I ask, I'm just recapping what I said. Charles in charge had left his teenage daughters and a teenage son back with relatives to either fend for themselves, grow up fast, just figure it out. 
Charles's sister Clara Hastings Cooley helped as much as she could with at least the younger daughter, Ursula, by taking that child in. But here's my question. Does any of this feel familiar to you? I literally just went through and read to you a group of siblings who had been orphaned when their parents died. But the Hastings children, they still had a parent alive. Charles in charge. And I just wonder... What was Willis Gladding thinking about this situation? I mean, himself and his older sisters were all put in this situation without parents. Here's a parent that isn't even taking his other daughters and his other son, who would end up going down a really bad path. Do you think Willis supported any of it? Do you think it felt sort of like his own life? What if his father had lived? Would he have split the family up? Willis went along with this plan of Daisy's, moving about an hour to the west and living on an adjoining farm. In 1911, Willis and Mary became grandparents to Daisy and Charles's baby, Clara Bell Hastings. I'm positive this baby was doted on by her grandpa, grandma, and mother. I don't know about anybody else, though. I mean, probably. But as it was back then, people died more frequently. When the baby was one year old, her half-brother Charlie, who was left behind by his father, killed his wife and then himself. In 1914, the baby's mother, Daisy, gave birth to a son named Paul. Paul died when he was nine days old from a high fever. Don't worry, it gets worse. When Clarabelle was four years old, another tragedy would shape her little life. Her mother, Daisha Ann Gladding Hastings. Hastings. Gotta say it twice for each of those Hastings men she married. Little Miss Daisy died. <sighs> Daisy was 25 years old and living in Eaton Rapids at the time of her death. She died from pneumonia. I know I give her a hard time, but man, I just feel bad that she died. Just a few years later, when little Clarabelle was seven years old, her oldest half-brother, who happened to be her mother's ex-husband, Floyd, passed away during the flu epidemic. So what do you think happened to little Clarabelle? I mean, of course, her father, Charles in Charge, stepped up and took care of her and raised her. Right? Oh, hell no. In the 1920 census, we have an answer as to what happened to the poor child. She was being raised as the daughter of Willis and Mary. Not the granddaughter, the daughter. They were living in Parma near Jackson, which is where Daisy was born. Willis was listed as a section laborer and Mary was a dressmaker. And I think it probably worked out for all of them. They had lost a daughter. This little girl had lost her parents, except her dad was living nearby. At the age of 16, Clarabelle got married and we have a copy of her marriage certificate on Ancestry. Surprisingly, Charles in Charge is listed as Clarabelle's father, but typed neatly after Chaz Hastings' name, that's Charles in Charge, are two dashes in the words, adopted father, which leads to Willis Gladding. Willis Gladding, who stepped up to raise his granddaughter. Clarabelle, the daughter of Charles in Charge and Little Miss Stacy, was now married to Roland Elmer Austin. He worked as a shipping clerk and highway construction. The couple had a daughter after their first year of marriage, 
waited five years for another child, waited five more years for their final child. In 1946, Clarabelle filed for divorce from her husband of 17 years. The reason was for extreme and repeated cruelty. Goodness. She next married William Sullenbarger twice. (laughs) All right, time out. Am I missing something? Because this is the second time this has happened to me. Please, someone, explain this. Now, in episode two of this podcast, Harvey Hodgkin married the same woman twice. Different states, different dates. This is happening again. Why did Claire, well, she actually went by the name Claire Bell. So not Claire A. Bell, but Claire Bell. Why did she marry this man twice? So the first time was in Eaton Rapids, Michigan on August 15th, 1947. And then again in Indiana on November 8th, 1965. And it makes no sense to me unless they got divorced and remarried. Anyhow, they were married all the way until Walter's death. Then Claire Bell did marry once more to a reverend, John William Bullock. When she died, though, in 1993, Claire Bell, the daughter of Charles in Charge and Little Miss Stacy, was buried next to Walter Sullenbarger, her second husband. And she was buried at Rose Hill Cemetery in Eaton Rapids. This would be the same cemetery that Mabin Peterson Hastings was buried in. Mabin Peterson Hastings was murdered by Claire Bell's brother, Charlie. Interesting, right? We started this episode with a historical fiction story I created based on what I knew about these families. Adolphus Bennett deciding to ask Hannah Hastings to be his wife. They were married for 30 years enduring so much love and loss together. Adolphus died at the age of 70 from cancer of the liver. Hannah lived another 10 years, and I believe she was in the care of her daughter, Pearl Rochester, when she died. Her cause of death is listed as something I can't quite make out, but underneath is the word senile. She is buried in the South Center Eaton Cemetery between her first husband, Nathan, and her second husband, Adolphus Bennett. The year of her death never filled in on the headstone. So there you have it. That is my episode about the Gladdings, the Hastingses, and the Bennetts. It was all the things that I didn't have time to tell you or I just found out, I recently discovered, and I wanted to share, I guess, the rest of the story. You can just find out so much information from censuses and land ownership maps, and I think you should. I think you should find out. Start with your house or start with your great-grandparents. You know, maybe you'll find out something crazy, like you're married to one of your cousins or something. Maybe it's best not to know these things. I don't know. But I have a couple of Oops, I'm Stupid Again stories that I want to share with you real quick because I meant to share these, you know, in all my other episodes. Uh, And so here's my first one, okay? This story was submitted to me by Karen Larkin of Charlotte. 
She wrote that when she was about eight or nine, she was doing something naughty, which was jumping on the couch down in the basement. Of course, she knew she wasn't supposed to be doing this, but hey, what the harm? Except she bounced herself into the gun rack hanging on the wall above the couch, and her eye smacked the corner of it. And she didn't just get a black eye. She knocked herself out cold. (laughs) And when she came to, she went upstairs. And obviously her mother was like, what the heck happened to you? And Karen was all like, what do you mean? (laughs) Apparently she had a ginormous black eye. And when her mom said, you have a black eye, Karen was all like, no, I don't. But her mama said, you better go check yourself before you wreck yourself because lying to your mama is bad for your health. And of course, Karen admitted that she did it and she would never do it again. Actually, I have another story for you about this Karen. See, she used to babysit these three amazing children and they had a glass table for their dining room table. It must have been a really amazing look for the 80s because I would never buy a glass table, I don't think. Anyhow, she was babysitting them and she was studying at the dining room table doing some homework when suddenly this glass table just split in half and the half she was sitting under fell into her lap like a giant slab of glass just chilling on her lap. (laughs) Okay, so she was my babysitter, and I walked into that room and was like, what the fork happened? I did. Uh, we had to, like, get the glass off of her lap. Anyways, it didn't shatter. It was just a big chunk of glass. Anyhow, something interesting to know about Karen is that she grew up near Mills Highway. <laughs> Pretty cool, right? And she also had this house. Her house wasn't old, but... Uh, She had old barns that we used to play in, which was really exciting, but I think they're torn down now. And I found some more information out about her house because, God, God, I just can't stop myself. Anyhow, that's it. That's all I have for you today. And I am so sorry it's taken me this long to get this episode to you. There will be one more episode before I take a break. It won't be a long break. It might even just feel like this break. But I've got some exciting things happening in my life. I'm supposed to be going to a concert in Iowa. And it's a concert celebrating the lives of three people who died in a plane crash and we will be flying out there. So I'll probably do an episode about that. Um, My hero, one of my favorite, favorite singers and songwriters of all time, Buddy Holly. So there's that coming to you. And I've already just got so many stories coming your way, but I won't get into that now because I need to end this episode. All right. I want to thank my three sponsors and let you know that I mainly just used ancestry.com and an old land ownership map to do this whole episode. I think maybe I looked some stuff up about the civil war, but anyways, you can get my sources from my show notes on Buzzsprout. I will see you all really soon for another episode of Where They Stood. (laughs) 